Good morning, Disciples Church. Good to see you today. God is good. What a great time to celebrate Him and to dine together at the Lord's table. Amazing grace He has shown us, and it's a joy to be together. Will you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of James? We're uh, enjoying this sermon series that we're calling Faith at Work. Through the letter of James. You'll find it in the back of your Bible if you're just joining us after Hebrews and before 1 Peter. Um, it has been a real treat. Just three pages in your modern Bible is the length of James, and yet it is just packed with so much good stuff. And the, the mega theme there is that our faith, true saving faith, faith that trusts in Jesus as Lord, will go to work. It will produce good and God-honoring works. It will show itself. And so James is lovingly writing to Jewish Christians, Jews who were saved and placed their faith in in Jesus, and this ongoing reality that there's some who claim faith in Christ, and yet there is a lack of the real evidence of that faith at work, and real concern that comes with that. And we, we see that definitely in the part of the passage that we're in currently. I preached last week on chapter 4, 1 through 3, in a sermon I simply titled War. If you missed that, you can catch it on our podcast Today, I'm going to preach the next three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. Um, if you're a note taker, we have a little simple uh, pages back there, just with the hopes that you would capture what God has from His Word today, that we could build on it in our study of the Word throughout the week. Um, much, much to cover in today's sermon War with God, the next layer of what James is going to speak to here today. Um, and, and a much-needed passage for the modern church. Look with me just at his opening words here in verse 4, James 4.4. 4, he says, You adulterous people. This uh, abrupt exclamation that James makes marks the beginning of what some call the strongest-worded call to repentance in the New Testament. Consider... The fact that it is abrupt and somewhat shocking in that to his audience so far, James has referred to them as brothers or dear brothers. We we see this in verses like James 1, 2, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 10 and 12, and uh, dear brothers in chapter 1, 16 and 19, and chapter 2, verse 5. I mean, he, he says it a lot. Hey, your beloved family, I love you. And yet, all of a sudden, he now says, you adulterous people. And that stands out. And it should. Because he's making a big and important point about where maybe some of this audience really stands with the Lord. Um, To fully digest this, we need to slow down and really consider what is idolatry. Adultery is the unlawful betrayal of the marriage covenant by any form of sexual intimacy or engagement with someone who is not your spouse. Adultery. Our church's statement of beliefs, you can find it on our website, it's a pretty thorough understanding of what we believe historically, Bible teaches and Christians have stood for. Um, in that statement, we say marriage is a covenant relationship whereby God joins together one man and one woman into a one flesh union designed to be faithful and last until the couple is separated by death. According to scripture, marriage is the sole context God has ordained for sexual intimacy and sexual engagement. Paul helps us to understand that God's design for marriage is bigger than we often view it in. We often just see it simply as a commitment of two in this unique bond of marriage and that relationship, and we kind of keep it right there. But but God has a bigger purpose for marriage than just the relationship itself, and it is to point mankind to the eternal covenant relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. We see Paul explain this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, 31 and 32. First, he quotes Genesis 2.24, and where we see the definition of marriage according to God who created it, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, 
the two shall become one flesh. There's the definition of marriage. And then the explanation of its purpose we see in verse 32. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The ultimate uniqueness of two who become one in God's design for marriage has an eternal purpose attached to it to point to the eternal marriage of God the Son, Jesus Christ, with the bride, the redeemed people of God, the church. So it then should not surprise us that God often uses descriptions of marriage between himself and his covenant people, even in the Old Testament, and setting the stage for what this ultimately will be fulfilled in Christ. Places like Isaiah chapter 54, 5 through 6, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Then we read in in many other places about the adulterous betrayal of Israel against God, as they gave themselves over to sin and false gods. Note with me before I read this passage, their infidelity is not sexual, but is spiritual against God. The imagery and definitions really still applies, and we see it in the wording of Scripture. Places like Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. Surely a treacherous wife, As a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Judges 2.17, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. The pinnacle of the imagery we see in the Old Testament of Israel's unfaithfulness to God is potentially shown in the life of Hosea. Uh, A huge imagery is the Lord's will to be on portrayal in that the Lord commands Hosea to marry a prostitute so that her unfaithfulness would portray the adulterous relationship that Israel had with false gods. Listen to these words in Hosea 1-2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom, forsaking the Lord." So see the imagery of the atrocity of the unfaithfulness of God's old covenant people, Israel, against him by going after false gods, by chasing after sin again and again. And Jesus continues this reference and imagery of God's people adulterating their covenant with him in Matthew chapter 12, 39 and 16, 4. He calls them an evil and adulterous generation. He said this to the religious Jews who had turned away from the Lord and revealed in his revealed word to their own laws that they had created and false worship that they had got caught up in. Despite their fierce claims that they had devotion to God, as many even modern people will claim, their practice of Judaism was broken. They were adulterating and were adulterous in their denial of the one true God and what he had proclaimed they should do and follow and obey him. These references of adultery, we want to note, were only ever made of the Jews, of Israel, as the adulterous wife. They're never made of the Gentiles, because only Israel had the covenant relationship, the old covenant relationship with God, while 
unbelieving or unfaithful Gentiles were spiritual fornicators in sinful acts and disobedience against what God's law called for, they were not referred to as adulterers because they didn't have the covenant relationship with God through the Old Covenant like the Israelites did. That's a unique clarity. James' audience is saved Jews or people who have claimed Christ who were Jewish. So this fits to use this reference ongoingly. We must always remember that the old covenant that God made with Israel stood as a temporary covenant that offered temporary blessings but did not offer eternal life. Through promises and types and shadows, it taught about the Messiah who was to come to fulfill the law, establish the new covenant, and redeem God's elect. It is only in the new covenant that the chosen people of God are redeemed into an eternal, unbreakable relationship with Him. Those whom He saves, those who are His, will forever be His. He will lose none of who He has. We have passage after passage passage to show the eternal security and perfect work of God for His saved ones. God's faithfulness and power to pursue us and buy us out of our slavery to sin and what that sin earned us in eternal judgment, the fact that He would secure us with Him forever for this church, we greatly rejoice. Amen. I I really want you to do business with that for a moment this morning as we climb into this text. Consider the faithfulness of Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh to die for us when we were not wooing Him or doing anything, anything that would merit His choosing us. For nothing we did in sin prior to faith in God and new birth was for the glory of God. No, instead we wanted nothing to do with Him. All we did was sin and pursue our flesh. The scripture says even the good we did outside of Christ was sin. Because its aim is not God. So see with me, we were the epitome of the unfaithful spouse. In every way whoring ourselves to sin and selfish desires. It was in that state of unfaithfulness that Jesus pursued us, bought us, won us, and secured us to be His forever. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 Ephesians 5, 25-26 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. He gave Himself up for us. His eternally chosen bride while we were nothing but unfaithful to Him. about that most people struggle with the idea of remaining faithful to a marriage covenant for one act of adultery or unfaithfulness what about when that spouse wants nothing to do with you and all they do is literally whore themselves to others and adulterate the covenant that was made. Most would say in their selfish flesh, there's no way I would remain faithful to that covenant, to that person, if that was their condition or practice. But, but I need you to see today, that was us. 
I need you to see the depth of our unfaithfulness. Every one of us who has called upon the name of Jesus and been reconciled to him was in that very state of constant, sinful, selfish unfaithfulness to what God is due. We wanted nothing to do with him, and yet he remained faithful. Praise God that he is good, and he will not betray himself or his plan for graceful redemption of his chosen people. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It is the strength of the Lord that we are dependent on. For if it were up to us, we would have no hope. None. So when James says, you adulterous people, it is in light of all that God has done to make us his. That James is lovingly but firmly reprimanding so-called brethren to see the gross error of their present lifestyle that's producing some kind of God-belittling sinful fruit or work. They betray the faith God has given them with words or actions that are of the world and not of God. And so his loving warning is what he says next. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Again, this is a call to repentance. So he's reminding them, if it looks like by your actions you are a friend of the world, you are not really of God, you're at war with God. Another point that he's making, that your true saving faith will produce works that honor God. And if you fall in sin or commit sin, you will confess it as sin and repent of it unto the glory of God and not remain in it in an unrepentant way. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The the word friendship here is the Greek word philia. It's the its verb form is phileo, which is often communicated to, to, to speak about love or, or a deeper relationship. This is not a little buddy-buddy friendship. It's something deeper. That the verb form is used to describe the father's love for the son. Consider the weight of that love. As we see in places like John 5.20. God's love for his redeemed people in places like we see in John 16.27. In the best place, we see the depth of what is meant by friendship here, friendship with the world, the kind of, the kind of cling is explained in Jesus' words in John 15, 13 through 14. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Think about the love that's there. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This kind of friendship involves great sacrifice and faithfulness. So this isn't, my point in all that is, the words used here, this friendship's not shallow. So when James says friendship with the world, he's not saying buddies. He's describing a deep affection of the worldly sinful system as opposed to God. Friendship with the world doesn't mean you're, you're friending people who are lost in sin and loving them in the name of Jesus, we're to do that as the church. But it means a love and faithfulness to the world's system, sinful system, values, priorities, impulses, attractions. And we can see it in friendships or family relationships in the difference between your world worldly friends feeling totally comfortable with you even though you totally play for two separate teams there's a lack if this friendship exists with the world there's a lack of a reality that there's something very different about you we should never apologize for that that is actually one of the best ways the gospel goes out of us to be saved from the penalty of sin of eternity in hell apart from God unto new life in Christ and then to look just like the world is to miss 
one of the most beautiful parts of what the gospel should be showing. But if there's such a committed devotion to people in the world that they are committed to satisfying their fleshly desires and worldly priorities, and you are committed to honoring God and His priorities, but there's no tension that creates, that's a problem. That's a problem. It means it's, it's much, there's a closer affinity than there should be. That tension should be there. James is kind of saying that cannot be. Your faith will produce works and words and priorities that will not mean love and faithfulness to the world's sinful system, values, impulses, and practices. James helps his hearers understand that love or embrace of the world's sinful system means you are at war with God. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. So James is not alone. We're going to see this again and again. Those words from Paul. Um, consider Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. I want to see that James is not alone in these in this things. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. See it just most clearly that unrighteousness is the opposite of righteousness. God is righteous. Sin and the fleshly standard of this world are unrighteous to be for the unrighteous of the world is to be against God and his righteousness to embrace or befriend or wrap your arms around unrighteousness is to embrace the lost and condemned world to do this is to stand against God and what is honoring to God so I want you to see with me that James is saying the truly saved will not do this. They will not befriend and love and embrace the world this way. The truly saved cannot be enemies of God for they are His beloved forever. We were enemies in our sin. We were against Him in all that we did but we have been saved by faith and now trust Him and honor Him and live for Him in our actions, in our words, in our priorities, in our values. And so Paul says, and such were some of you. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of new life in Christ. This is the beauty of for many in the room, many in our church have, have done, been part of, practiced champions of horrific things that are greatly opposed to God. And yet in Christ you are made new, given the power to fight such things, to repent and turn from them, to honor God. And fight we must, and not practice or clean or endorse like we did of old any longer. You who are saved by faith in Christ used to be like that, but no longer, because you are no longer enemies of God. So James is emphasizing those who do embrace the world and its ways prove to not be of saving faith in God, but are instead at enmity with Him, at war with Him. 
as a true Christian, can you love, now listen carefully, can you love and serve and testify to the idolater, the adulterer, the homosexual, the greedy person, the drunk in your life? And the answer is yes. And we should. Love or serve or testify to them. But can you embrace them? Affirm them? Count them as acceptable and good in what they do? The answer is no. Because these things are against God. They are unrighteous and worthy of His wrath. To embrace them in this way is to make friendship with the world and its lostness in a way that you cannot also stand with God in what is righteous and God-honoring. It doesn't matter how right it feels or how much it works. James 4, 4, part 2. Do you not... Know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. This is a loving clarity that James is bringing to his hearers, and it gets to be for us. Those who claim faith in Christ, but then with their actions and their words, embrace and improve of and make good look good the sinful system and pursuits of unrighteousness of this world, prove they are not of Christ. They do not trust Jesus. They do not honor God. They trust their own fleshly logic. They trust their humanistic reasoning or ideologies. They redefine love and what is right and what is good. And this Is this not such a needed message for the modern day church, those who would claim Jesus? How poignant is this? How many people... Do you know or, or, or maybe even are, are guilty of being who claim Jesus as Lord, who, who claim to have died to sin and self, who claim to have been saved and made new by the blood of Jesus, but then hold up as good and valuable the very things that stand against Christ, that are unrighteous, the very things by which He paid with His own blood on the cross to forgive The very practices that made the guilty deserving of his righteous wrath. Paul says, don't be deceived. James has said that too. The true church, those who are of true saving faith, will not call the things of God, or the, I'm sorry, will not call the things that God calls sin good or acceptable. We won't do that. We do not endorse them or practice them. Those with true saving faith do not call sexual immorality good or acceptable. It is not righteous. So we do not celebrate people's intimacy or their sexual engagement outside of marriage ever. The practice of homosexuality is not good or acceptable. It is unrighteous. So we do not celebrate people's practice of it ever. The practice of stealing is not good or acceptable. It is not righteous. So we do not justify worldly business practices or participate in taking anything that's not ours ever. The murder of a conceived child in the womb is not good or acceptable. It is not righteous. So we do not advocate for the humanistic view that holds high a woman's right to choose over the life of the child in the womb that God has ordained, ever. And on and on to look at the commandments of God and what He has called sin. We do not call them good or acceptable. And if you're guilty of calling those things good or acceptable, if you're guilty of approving of or embracing such things, 
then you need to confess that as sin and repent, which means turn from it unto a course that honors God. That's why this is such a bold call to repentance. I am much less concerned about where you've been on these matters and all concerned about what you do with the truth of God from today forward, that you see sin as sin, as you confess it as sin, and you turn from it. You don't continue in its practice. You, if of faith in God, trust God, honor God, and live that way. If you do not confess these things as sin and repent of this kind of friendship with the world, then to use James' words in Holy Scripture, you prove yourself to be an enemy of God. Or to use John's words, you prove the love of the Father is not in you. This is James' strong and loving warning against those who would claim faith, but then not have works and words that prove that faith. True saving faith in Jesus will mean a life of works and words that honor God, that are good. It will mean a conviction to honor God. You want to honor God, not your flesh, not your family traditions, not your culture. And some will really struggle, which I get, and will say, so what does that mean for my relationships with my family or some longtime friends that are endorsing or practicing these things? What does it mean for my political views or my voting? What does it mean for the way I raise my kids, speak of these things publicly? It, it means change. That's what repentance is. That's what conviction of sin does. It means sanctification in these areas. If you are of true faith in God and are devoted to God and accountable to God, you will honor God and not count friendship with the world or the agendas of the world as more important. You will not sell out your faith to keep and have an embrace of these things. You might say, but that means people I love could turn on me. Uh, that could really change a relationship or our family dynamic. And I would say, the moment you trusted your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior meant that massive change began. And I pray you see that as a good thing, not as a bad thing. I would go so far to say that being persecuted and hated by those who are entrenched in the ideologies and priorities of this lost sinful world is a good thing. Before you run out the door and say, this guy's is too far. Let me quote Jesus as saying that. Okay, So your issue is not with me, but with him. Or, by God's grace, your conviction unto sanctification is from our Lord hear Jesus' words. Uh, I just read you a moment ago, John 15, 13-14. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Oh, we love that one, don't we? We just want to do this with that one. It's just so... Right? Some don't like the next one as much. You are my friends if you do what I command you. But just look down a few more verses at verse 18 through 20, what, where Jesus goes next. He says in John 15, 18 through 20, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world and the world loved you, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will persecute you. Church, hear this. Our temptation in our flesh is to want to be loved by the world. I've seen in almost 20 years of pastoral ministry and preaching too many who once claimed to be sold out to Jesus as Lord proved to be false disciples, proved to have never been saved because at the end of the day, they didn't obey God's commands. They didn't trust Jesus with faith. They went out and practiced being loved by the world and the agendas of the world. Can we look out for ourselves and for each other as the church that we not get caught up in what is called the fear of man? It's a great sin that any of us in our flesh can really struggle with. The fear of man is a deep-seated sinful desire that wants the approval, the applause, the acceptance, or the compliments of others rather than from God. Church, we're not of this world. Jesus says, if saved by Christ, we are not of this world. And that doesn't mean that we're aliens. But it does mean that we are now aliens from the priorities and agenda of this lost, sinful, condemned world and its practices. Here's what we have to understand. Being hated by the world is not something we, the church, should avoid or put away or put under a rock. The hatred of the world is another marker that you belong to Jesus. It is good news to be hated by the world because it is a sign you are no longer of the world. If you were still of the world, what Jesus says here is sobering. He says, if you were of the world the world would love you as its own. Let us heed our Lord Jesus' words in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10-12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But pastor, if I hold to what is good and God-honoring in righteousness, there will be great turmoil in my family and among other people that hold to these things. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, Jesus says that we are blessed to be persecuted by the world for our allegiance to Jesus and obedience to his word. And the sad reality is there's a lot of churches that will never preach this because it doesn't appease the flesh very well. It doesn't gather the masses. But my job is not to do that. My job is to preach the word of God and help us understand it rightly. Your job is to submit to the word of God and to love him and honor him, serve him all of your days. May it be our joy to do so. A quick word before we move into verse 5. Three quick clarities that I I must make sure you don't miss. First, let me say that the conviction to change, some of the change you're by the conviction of the Holy Spirit are considering this morning, that you're considering in your mind and you're seeing the turmoil it will bring and the hardship and the, the lack of convenience it might bring to your life and how it will be hard. I just want to say, because it's hard, doesn't mean you don't do what honors God. Please don't put it away, because what you're looking at ahead of you is going to be hard. Obey God. Let the conviction of the Spirit do its work in your life, according to His Word. Second, this is one of the great purposes of the church, 
in the life of the believer and every one of us is to link arms and to, to walk with you in this. So you might be going, how do I even begin? I, I get the conviction. I get this practice I should no longer do. I should now honor God with this. But how do I carry that out? How do I even begin to say those words to people I love and I've walked with? That's the beauty of the body of Christ, to lean into each other for prayer and for encouragement, to be held up and to be benefited by the wisdom and leadership of, of, of elders and shepherds and disciple makers and group leaders. and so, so don't go at that alone. Lean in. Call a beloved, trusted, mature brother or sister and say, will you join us in this journey? Will you join me in this journey? And remind them, I know this is going to be hard. I know I'm crying. I, whatever's going on, I want to honor God in these things. For I belong to Him and not to the world. Not anymore. May May it be so, I pray. Third, most who stand opposed to God in His holy, righteous ways would not consider themselves enemies of God. It is in their arrogance and naivety and ignorance that they consider themselves on good terms with God because in their minds they don't wage war against the, th- the way they've pictured or framed God to be. But we must hear James' words this morning that by their allegiance and friendship with the world and its values and systems and governance priorities that are unrighteous and dishonor God is the ways that we make ourselves grossly opposed to God and His holy ways. This is what defines an enemy of God or not. Look with me at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? He's speaking of a righteous jealousy of God for His creation. That they would do what they should do which is honor and obey and worship Him. That is a right expectation on the creation by the Creator. Exodus 20, 3-6, You shall have no other little g-gods before Me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14-15, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. In this, I want you to see, I want us to see that jealousy, number one, is not always sinful or negative, as you might even be like, God, jealous? Like, isn't jealousy bad? When rightly applied, It is a godly attribute and can be a God-honoring thing for us as well when rightly applied, not sinfully applied. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, speaking to his beloved, the church, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul, the shepherd, the apostle, wants the church to be devoted to Jesus. And in that, he exercises a divine, righteous jealousy for that to be that way. So there is a righteous desire that we can have in certain situations for people to be for whom God made them to be. So as a spouse... You can have a divine jealousy for your spouse's faithfulness. For they belong to you. And you belong to them. 
So it is not a bad thing that you are jealous for your spouse's faithfulness to the covenant that has been made by God in your oneness. It is not a bad thing that you would be jealous, divinely, righteously jealous, that your children would obey you as God has commanded them to. That there would be a righteous jealousy for that to be their reality. On the other hand, sinful jealousy is covetousness. To covet is to strongly desire something that belongs to someone else. We saw the negative effects of sinful covetousness last week in James 4, verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covetousness is a a dissatisfaction with what God has given us and an obsessive fascination with what he has given someone else. Sinful jealousy is bitter envy that causes us to look at others with, with even, when it doesn't go our way, disdain. It causes division and negative consequences as we're just unsatisfied looking constantly at others. Sinful jealousy is when you want your body to look like someone else's body. But you know what? That's, that's not your body. That's their body, and God gave you your body. Or your, the car you drive, you want it to look like that guy's car, but that's not the car God entrusted you. The money he entrusted you, he entrusted that guy that money. Or maybe he sinfully doesn't even have his own money because he's in debt, can't even afford his car, and yet you're coveting that, and that just goes on and on. We must see that God has a righteous jealousy for his people to be faithfully committed to and obedient to him who reigns above all things, who is worthy of our devotion and our praise. He rightly wants all of creation to honor him as God. This is good and a right expectation of God for all of his creation. Remember the moral law may be best synopsized or clarified in the Ten Commandments is not just commandments on God's people. It is commandments, is a moral law on all mankind. So he exercises a righteous jealousy for his creation to honor and worship him as we should. Or do you suppose that it is of no purpose that the Scriptures say again and again and again and again, that he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. It's another layer of James warning and bringing clarity. We who are the created of God should have no friendship with the world and therefore make ourselves at war with God. He's righteously, divinely jealous for our commitment, worship to him. How sweet it is that our God is jealous for his creation to rightly worship and honor him above all else. So, to answer back James' question as he's trying to make his point, it is not of no purpose that the scriptures speak of God's righteous jealousy for his creation and even more so for his elect, for his chosen people. Which is where I believe James goes... Next, in verse 6, see this with me. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. All of God's creation has received what's called common grace, meaning our sin, any sin of mankind before the holiness of God, earns and deserves his righteous wrath. We deserve to be smited on the spot. The fact that he lets us breathe and live even one more day or a lifetime is in the economy of his common grace. But God gives more grace. 
than just His common grace. He gives saving grace. He gives it to prideful people who were arrogant in the lordship of our own lives. And in doing so, He gave us a new heart and a humility before Him to see and savor Him as Lord. To submit ourselves to Him. He righteously stands against the proud, those who remain prideful, remain in sin, continue in the flesh, have friendship with the world, but He gives grace to the humble, those who have been made new, given a heart of flesh, a humility before the presence of the Holy God, to the Lordship of Jesus in their lives. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Pride looks to attract the attention of others. Humility attracts the attention of God. Isaiah 66.2, this is the one I esteem, the Lord is speaking, the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So when James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we could wrongly ascertain that humility is something we do in order to obtain such grace. But that's not true, according to all of Scripture, We do nothing to merit His grace, His saving grace. If we did, it would no longer be called grace. That's a different sermon for another time. We must see the truth of saving grace and then it precedes the practice of true humility. What James is saying here is that God's grace and favor rest on those who are humble because their humility is a sign that they are saved, that they are His. Because without God's saving grace, we only know and do and practice sin and pride. We don't humble ourselves before the Lord. Notice something really powerful here. I pray you take this home with you today. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. The worst thing that you can ever experience is not cancer. The worst thing that you can ever experience is not starvation or hunger or poverty or a beating or abuse or infidelity. or public humiliation, or false imprisonment. None of those things come close to the worst thing that you can experience. The worst thing you can experience is to be opposed to the Almighty God. God opposes the proud those who are friendship with the world or at enmity with him. To be at war with him is the worst thing to experience. There is no greater nightmare, no greater harshness, no greater fear, no greater loneliness than to have the almighty God against you. God opposes the proud in, our, in sinful pride. If that's the worst thing, then what's the best thing? The best thing you can ever experience is the grace and the love of the Almighty God. God gives grace to the humble. Oh, how you want God to be for you. For His grace to flood your soul. There is no sweeter thing than the amazing grace of God. I pray you do. 
I pray you confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus and stop playing in religion and stop playing in the middle and stop making the economy of this whole thing the way you think it should be. You have no authority to do that. You are against Him or you are for Him. You are against His ways or you submit to His ways. This is not ours to decide. And shame on a church culture that wants to appease the flesh of man to build big churches and fill the pews. We will not satisfy the flesh. We will not make friendship with the world to do these things. We must Be thankful to God for His Word. We must be thankful to God for calls of repentance like this today. For they are good for our souls. For it is loving for you to have someone look you in the eyes and say, Trust God. Turn from sin and the condemnation that comes with it. Believe in Him. Know His love and His grace. Be faithful to Him. Bring bring near the brethren to say, pray with me and hold me accountable. I will do whatever I need to do. I want to honor God and no longer satisfy my flesh in these things. To Him be the glory. I pray the gospel is alive in you and in our church and in our testimony to a watching world. You're lying to people to say that God's opposed to sin and only desperate for Jesus for salvation and then to wrap your arms with with affirmation around their sin. That's not loving them. That's a false gospel. Your your whole testimony to people you claim to love in this is broken. It needs to be rectified and, and repented of for His glory. I pray that if you claim Christ, you trust in Him. And if you have been guilty of embracing the world or the world's agendas to confess it as sin, and to repent, to turn, to begin the change of sanctification. Praise God for His jealousy for us. When He chose to be rich in mercy, to make us alive with Christ. Church, let the gospel truth wash over you this morning and cause you to well up with worship for Him and what He has done on the cross for us. May the gospel go out of us so that more who are out there, who are enemies of God, would be transformed, would be made new. And become children of God. I leave you with the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 1-10 through 10, for how wonderfully they bring together what we've seen this morning. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by Jesus, so that in the coming, I'm sorry, by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our faith at work. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of of this bold warning and exclamation, these these simple words in in James and and just what that means for us and for our faith and for our testimony. And I just thank you that you've drawn us together this morning and all the things calling for our attention, all the worldly temporary things that are clamoring for our affection and and our priorities, You are our priority this morning. We're here. And and I just pray that that would not be a box checked and now done, but that you would be our priority in our conviction, in our 
in our purpose, just in, in, in leaving here, in, in our going, in our testimony this week, in our response to sin and, and that there would be real confession and repentance and you would be glorified in these things. And so we slow as we go to part ways this morning, just in song, in camaraderie and song and worship to sing of your great gospel and amazing grace. Hear us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.